chocolate. 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 From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. Hey, chocolate lovers. This is part two of the mini-series of full-length interviews recorded during season one. Today's interview is one I did with Greg D'Alessandro when we were both in Tokyo, Japan. Greg is the cacao sourcer for Dandelion Chocolate, both the American and Asian locations. He's incredibly gregarious and equally as busy, so we did this interview in a spare room of Dandelion's Tokyo Chocolate Factory. There's an echo and some noises from kids playing just outside, but I've edited that out as best I could. There are also a few curse words, so if you're listening with little ears, I'd wait a bit. For more info on Greg and Dandelion, click the link in the description to read the show notes, or visit my website at damecacao.com. D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Let's get into the show. I'm Greg D'Alessander. I'm the chocolate sorcerer here at Dandelion Chocolate. And how long have you been with Dandelion and Dandelion? That's okay. <laughs> yeah, Dandelion, like the flower, or Dandelion, if you're was, uh, a little more in the French. I grew up calling it Dandelion. Oh. I so, but now people around me call it Dandelion, and I have to reckon with the oh, fact yeah. that I may have been saying it wrong for decades. Like you're like dandelion, like the E's that get the. I think I might have just like read it wrong as a kid and just no one corrected me. So, how long have you been with dandelion and what was your background before? Um, So, I've been with dandelion now since uh, 2012. A long time ago, I was an electrical engineer and then moved into software engineering and then moved into into product management. Uh, And so, prior to dandelion, I was working at Google. For about six years, seven years, somewhere thereabouts, um, and I'd worked on a number of projects at Google. But I'd always wanted to make chocolate. That was the only thing I ever really wanted to do. I know it sounds like a crazy thing to say, um, but like even in college, I was the chocolate guy. I always, I like every job I ever had. I was the person who would bring in like bags of chocolate. When I lived in Australia, I would carry twenty kilos of chocolate through security. Every time I came back from the U.S. because you couldn't get good chocolate in Australia at the time, I would always do Cluzel and um, Volrona, which were um, always some of my uh, my favorites. But then I, you know, I, I would uh, I would sometimes bring in like um, some inclusion stuff. Oh, when um, Santander, the like Colombian brand, first came out, I, I brought some of that. I would just like whatever new things I would find, I would like bring over just so I could taste it and other people would taste it because I was curious. To like understand what people liked or didn't like. So you knew about craft chocolate before you started working with Dandelion. Yes, Todd and Cam are the founders of Dandelion, mm-hmm. um, and I first met them at um, the Salon de Chocolat in uh, in San Francisco. It was the first one, I think, first and maybe last one they ever did. And so I was always I was always involved in chocolate and enjoyed chocolate, and you know, the whenever there were chocolate makers. Um, in Sydney, for instance, I, I you know befriended them, and that sort of thing. So I was uh, I, I was always into chocolate, and every job I ever took, I told the manager that this is all well and good, but I'm going to go and leave and make chocolate someday. 
And the reaction was always usually one of like, sure, that, yeah, whatever, man. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Um, lo and behold, I eventually did it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, I, and I had saved money for it. You know, I had, uh, um, it, it, it had been kind of a long-term plan, which was also quite satisfying once I finally started working in chocolate. Almost everybody I knew was like, oh my God, you did it. You like actually are working in chocolate. And I was like, well, I said I was going to. But so now I have a, I have a, I, I still get a pretty good stream of people contacting me wanting to understand how I left the tech industry to follow my passion. Because I think a lot of people in the tech industry feel stuck. They feel like they, they, they don't know how to get out. I mean, getting out is as easy as going to your boss saying, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. Here's my Giving notice. enough notice and, yeah. and leaving. But I think there's something, I think, especially in the tech industry, like when people say golden handcuffs, they're not kidding. Like there's, you make sort of an, 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 a disproportionately high amount of money to like your age and experience in the tech industry. And so I think a lot of people get used to it and then they're like well i can leave and do something else but i'm never going to make this amount of money and the answer is that's true you won't so the question is do you want to go and do something else that you really want to do or do you want to continue making a lot of money and that's kind of the it's kind of the decision you have to make like anyone who's getting into craft chocolate because they think they're going to make millions of dollars should stop tomorrow there's the running joke in the cotton in the wine industry is the Best way to make a small fortune is to start with a large fortune, and I and I feel like it kind of applies to the chocolate industry as well. That being said, I feel like I'm working in an industry I really love. I mean, the people in the chocolate industry are amazing. Um, are like the people working at Danline are amazing, um, but everyone across the industry because craft chocolate is craft chocolate pretty much only attracts people who are really into craft chocolate. So it means that everyone you're dealing with like shares the passion you share, but it also like you have to be clever and and nimble and innovative and all of these things that I appreciate as qualities of human beings in general. And so it's one of the things I really like about a lot of the people in craft chocolate is like you're meeting a lot of just super interesting people who all left other careers to do this thing that they're really excited about and really love, which and I does, appreciate. Does this extend to the farmers that you've been working with? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, um, George originally was in the special forces, uh, left, went to law school, became a lawyer, and now is working in, with cacao in Honduras. Right, among other things. Well, yes, cacao, cacao pulp, and compachi. Um, <laughs> yeah, something else that he was importing into Tokyo that he was like, this was a wonderful excuse to come here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's working with fish. He's working. He's he, yeah. He's working with kampachi, which is a specific type of fish that's quite popular um, from in, Mexico, not even in, Honduras. From Mexico. He's working in a company in Mexico to pr- produce this. Um, but uh, but yeah. So like, even among cacao producers, it's a very diverse group of people uh, who. Because while there's a lot of cacao producers in the world, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of cacao producers who want to produce specialty cacao or, in fairness, have the resources to produce specialty cacao. Anytime you're trying to do a kind of new product or a, let's just call it a risky product that might or might not succeed, you have to have enough, uh, you have to have an, uh, enough flexibility, which flexibility to me often translates into money, to be able to, to try doing it. And so I think... A lot of the people in specialty cacao in the last decade have been people who had the resources to be able to take a chance. 
And I'm, what I'm excited about is I'm hoping to see in the next decade more. It's it feels less risky because there's more people buying, and therefore if it's less risky, a wider a wider assortment of people will be able to to, to sort of try and attempt to make uh, sort of better cacao that could be used for peanut butter chocolate. question was going to be how do you define a cacao brand oh well and so this is actually i i find cacao brand a really fascinating topic and it's something that i talk with a lot of the people we work with about because if you look in the wine industry uh vineyards have a lot of the the sort of power in the power dynamic between vineyards and um wineries you know a lot of times vineyards will have contracts that say you know, I get to taste your wine, and if it's not good enough, you can't use the name of my vineyard on your on your wine, right? And which is really interesting. And you'd think, well, why doesn't the same apply in the chocolate industry? And I'd argue the main reason for that is wines are grown in developed countries. Cocoa is grown in developing countries, so there's this inherent power dynamic at play that, like, that that I think cocoa producers have never had the same amount of power and influence that wine growers have had um, and that and that continues to exist today and that being said I'm a huge advocate of cacao producers making their own brand for the cacao itself so that as people try chocolate made from their beans they'd be like oh much in the same way I know it's not exactly the same but when people try a Chardonnay wine they're like I like Chardonnays I'm gonna drink other Chardonnays now one Chardonnay clearly doesn't taste just like another Chardonnay, but it, but it's a thing people remember. And I think for cacao, like right now, people will remember countries. I think I I, I very much believe people will get to the point where they'll they'll start to remember brands of specific cacao producers. Um, and it happens in a small scale today, but I think it's going to continue to happen on a larger larger scale. Yeah, um, I'm an advocate for cacao producers. Um, creating contracts akin to what wineries do and say, we get to decide whether or not you, you can use the name of our, uh, of our cacao, you know, um, on your brand, right. right? I mean, like, it seems only fair. It is completely contrary to the way the whole industry works today. So I think a lot of people might think the concept is laughable, but uh, I, I think we're going to get there. And I think it would help push a lot of the power into the cacao producer's hands, which is important to do. There's too much power in the chocolate maker's hands as opposed to carrying producer's hands today. Yeah, and I think compared that, to how much they actually contribute to the final product. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, I mean, I think that I think for for the industry to be truly long term sustainable, that power dynamic has to shift. And again, like I'm not saying it should shift into 100% the other direction, but I think it, it it's too far in one direction today, and it has it to, to has to move balance out. Yeah, exactly. So since 2012, for the last seven years or so, has your role in working with cacao farmers changed or shifted at all? And how has it? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when I first started with Dan Lyon, I didn't know anything. Um, and so I would go and visit cacao producers more than anything to learn. Um, I'm still learning. Every single time I visit somebody, I learn something new. But I don't make cacao all day long. I don't, you know, I, I haven't spent a year fermenting and drying cacao. So I would not be, I wouldn't call myself an expert. Um, but I do, I've seen, I've been to 29 cocoa-growing countries and hundreds of farms. Uh, 
I haven't counted all the farms. Hundreds, let's say hundreds. Um, and so what it means is that like, I have a lot of breadth, even though I don't have a lot of depth in, in it. And so one of the big shifts that's happened is I think a lot of people are curious to hear what other people in the world are doing. Um, a lot of cacao producers don't have the resources to travel um, and see all these other cacao farms. Some do, but a lot don't. And so one of the things I can do is, I mean, everyone has WhatsApp, which is great. And so one of the things I can do is connect different people together who are running into similar challenges and, and try to and try to sort of build a network of cacao producers as a person who's meeting a lot of cacao producers. So that's I think that's one of the main things that has changed. I mean, my role at Dandelion has changed too. Um, as well, because when I started there, we were a, you know, five-person company, and we are much larger than that now. As such, we have a whole R&D team. My roles changed because now I'm helping to lead a part of a larger company instead of just sourcing cocoa, which was kind of what I started out doing. So, in terms of maybe two or three years ago there was a lot of sort of origin chasing like people were looking for what the next big origin is yeah and now the reverse it sort of flipped where all these different origins are now chasing cacao farm or now chasing chocolate makers True. but when you're the only ones or the first ones who are working with a specific origin what kind of feeling or like maybe power or pride does that give you if any i mean responsibility I was just that was exactly what I was going to say I think it feels more like responsibility to me because I think what you're doing is you're helping to introduce a new brand to the world and it's your responsibility to introduce them in the best way humanly possible and so um, it, it, it's, it's funny you say that because I, there absolutely was and there still is a lot of origin chasing people trying to have a bar from someplace you've never heard of before because they think it makes it more sort of attractive and appealing. Um, which is interesting because all the chocolate shop owners you talk to say, constantly are saying that they feel like people are much more interested of like, oh, I had a Coco Camille bar before. I'd like another, you know, do you have anything else from them? So it's really interesting that chocolate makers chase origins, but the chocolate consumers seem to actually want consistency in the origins they see from makers. And so it's this really like interesting kind of dichotomy that you see running. And when I talk to chocolate makers, it happens all the time where people are like excited about a new, a, like new set of beans that they found, a new producer that they started working with. And, but like those bars don't always sell the best because nobody's heard of them and, or know what they are. Um, and, uh, and so I, I do think there still is a lot of that sort of chasing going on. Um, the reality is there's, there, there's more supply than there is demand right now for, for specialty cocoa. What had happened is, and you, you saw this in Belize, it was like this really fascinating uh, start thing that happened where Maya Mountain, and I think and TCG had been producing cacao in Belize for a very long time and selling it to Green and Blacks and a few others. Toledo Cacao Growers Association, indeed. Um, so TCGA had been doing that for a long time. My Mountain got started. My Mountain, in fact, is the same age as Dandelion. And so we all often joke that we're siblings, that we've grown up together, and that, you know, we have, we run into the same challenges kind of at the same time. Um, but uh, they built a great brand out of Belizean cacao. And then suddenly, two years ago, there were half a dozen, a little more than half a dozen people who came to Belize and said, wait a minute, 
we, we want to, we're going to do Belizean cacao too. Clearly, everyone's buying Belizean cacao. I think what a lot of people who look from the outside of the chocolate industry don't realize is when they say a lot of people, it's like, yeah, there's a ton of chocolate makers buying two bags. And for anyone who doesn't know, a bag is like 60 kilograms, right? Sounds like a lot, but... But it's, I mean, yeah. when, when, uh, when you are a cacao producer, selling a bag of beans is, it's not a bad thing, but you want to sell a ton of beans or a container of beans. Literally a ton. Yeah, literally a ton. Um, a container of beans can hold 12 metric tons. And so, you know, you want to be selling like containers of beans, not like bags of beans. And so it's really fascinating how all these people went to Belize, which Belize produces about 150 tons of cocoa a year, which in the grand, exactly. Belize produces a tiny quantity of cocoa in the grand scheme of things, tiny. And so all these producers going to Belize saying, I'm going to make, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to make an awesome brand out of cacao in Belize was just laughable. And in fact, about a year after everyone got there and started doing this, everyone left just as quickly because they realized like, this isn't a business at all. And I think, and so I think that's one of the things that happens is people will see these cacao brands that are getting good pickup. Um, I, every once in a while, uh, you I, I, I read something somewhere where someone referred to Coco Camellia as a well-established cacao brand. But if you talk to Brian and Simran, they're like, well-established cacao brand? Like, we've been doing this for a couple of years and, like, we're barely getting off the ground. But I think because people see a lot of their bars, they're like, oh, these guys are everywhere. Um, which is, is often, sadly, to the detriment of them because what will happen is chocolate makers who are chasing new origins will see a bunch of other chocolate makers using say, Coco Camille beans. And then they're like, I don't want to use Coco Camille beans because everybody else is using them. Coco Camille will say like, but, but, we, but like all 20 of those chocolate makers was like half a ton of chocolate or half a ton of beans, right? Because each of them bought one bag. Not half a ton. I mean, let's say two tons of beans, right? Yeah. But like, and so like as a cacao producer, you're trying to move volume. Like that's how you make money. You're, you're, your margins are not very high. And so you make money off of moving a lot of beans um, and so as great as it is for someone to make an amazing chocolate bar out of your beans, which you can be proud of and is great, if, if it doesn't translate into someone else buying more of those beans, it doesn't help you as a cacao producer long term. And so like all the producers I talk to, as much as they're excited about people winning awards for their bars and things like that, the main thing they want is when that award is won, for other chocolate makers to be like, ooh. The, those beans are really good. Maybe I should buy some too. And a lot of times, this origin chasing what happens is the opposite, where people are like, somebody else has already won awards with that. I want to try something new. Um, so we really, as much as possible, uh, encourage. And, and I, I would also say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, most chocolate makers wouldn't say where their cocoa came from. In fact, now, like craft chocolate makers, small chocolate makers will say, but larger, more like older chocolate makers will often not, like they, they'll say the beans came from Ghana, but they won't say like where in Ghana, or they'll say, you know, uh, um, Trinidad. Like I, I think, I know I've mentioned Volrona a few times, so I have a lot of respect for them. Um, Volrona in naming the specific farms and places where they get their beans from was, was really an oddity. Most people would say Madagascar, but they wouldn't say Bertil Atkinson's estate. And the reason for this is because there was a lot of this fear of, well, if 
other people know where I get my beans from, maybe they'll go and buy the beans out from under me and then I won't have any beans. Like, which was this really kind of interesting uh, approach to it where I think the way I, I, I think about it is, hey, if everybody knows where we get the beans from, those guys can grow a better business and in growing a better business, there's a better chance that they're going to be around long term. Like, our goal is that... Our, our goal is that we don't really want cacao producers to only sell to us. Because if they do, it, it again, the responsibility comes back of like, what if something happens to us? Then like it causes a big problem um, for those producers. We used to buy beans from um, a co-op in Montuano, um, Venezuela. And because of a lot of challenge that came up in Venezuela, the people who were doing the export of the beans could no longer work with that co-op which meant we were the only buyer of all of that co-op's beans. And now suddenly they need to find somebody else because we can't get the beans out of Venezuela. Um, and, and that's a really hard place to be. I mean, like, imagine if in, in, you know, the people listening to this, imagine if in your business you had one customer, like, it would put you in a really risky position because, like, what happens to that customer just arbitrarily changes their mind. So we try not to be people's only customer. We try to do our best to... to to evangelize the producers we work with, introduce them to each other, introduce them to other chocolate makers, help them grow their business because we think it makes it makes it better better and, and sort of longer term sustainable for us and for them if they have a wide variety of customers that they're working with rather than just us. Um, so it's funny that you mentioned uh, Cocoa Camille and My Mountain Cacao because those are the two that I chose to Oh. Already interviewed like a oh. month ago for the piece. I, they're they're fantastic. They're they're both fantastic organizations. Love them to death. Um, and actually, I think it was my piece that said that Cocoa Chameleon right. is a well-established brand. And I and, and someone was like, say, "Huh?" <laughs> because I think that everyone has a different definition of brand. And for me, brand means this brand is associated with the cacao itself, and there's people associated with the brand. Not necessarily a certain totally. flavor profile, but that if you think Tanzanian cacao, you'll think of this brand. Yeah. So as a producer, they're not necessarily like very well established, but as a brand, which is a, right. a somewhat different entity, they're definitely one of the more established ones. Absolutely. Just and, like Atkinson and, and my mouth. And, and I, that's how I see it as well. Um, and I think that makes perfect sense, which is they, they've done a good job of building their brand, which is not to say they, they are a large a large company. They just have a really strong brand. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think has been really interesting to watch uh, Akerson's, uh, Akerson's book, Bajofo Estate in, in um, Madagascar specifically over the years, people might disagree, but I really give him credit as, as that was one of the first beans that was out there that tasted different and unique and really had a very uh, sort of strongly different character. The number of chocolate makers I talked to who say they tried a bar from his beans and it helped them realize, wait a minute, all chocolate doesn't taste the same. Um, and so like, I, I give him credit for really helping to kickstart specialty cacao, to give people this belief that like, oh, I can make cacao that doesn't taste like everybody else's cacao and people might buy it. Which, which, is, which is, like, if you look at the way that chocolate industry has existed for the last you know, two centuries. It's like what everyone was looking for is how to make something that is a that's that's a palette to do other things on top of, or a canvas, I should say, to do other things on top. Of. So you have candy bars, and you have some chocolate bars, 
But like the reality is most chocolate companies make most of their money off of selling chocolate to somebody else who makes something else out of it, not just selling bars of chocolate. There's exceptions to that. But, um, and, um, and so I think, I think uh, Bertil really changed the game by putting beans out there that, that tasted interesting, unique, and good. Um, but what's interesting is if you look at, we're, as long as we're talking about brands, if you look at his brand though, the number of times you see chocolate bars that say Madagascar, and they'll say, uh, some say Bajofo State, some say Atkinson, some say Sambarana, some say Sambarana Valley, some say Amange. Like, it, like there is this, there's a, there's a wide variety of ways people refer to his uh, estate. And so I think a lot of consumers think, oh, there's like tons of different places in Madagascar that good beans come from. And the reality is, most bars, that, most Madagascar bars that people have had, not all, but most, have come from Bertil's estate. And so, like, I think this is, I think it's, it's one of the reasons that it's important for cacao producers to have a brand and to some degree to be able to tell chocolate makers what they can and can't say. I say this, but we ourselves are guilty of this because we started saying homage Madagascar about Bertil's beans. And now, now he's, he's, He's encouraging the Bajofo estate. Um, at some point, we have to bite the bullet and change it. The problem is everybody's used to us saying Ambanj Madagascar. And so as soon like, as oh, we, is this different? Yeah, exactly. As soon as we change it to Bajofo estate, everyone's going to be like, oh, you don't use Bertil's beans anymore? Like, no, no, no. Um, but like, like we, I think there are a bunch of those times where early on, and this is what happens in young industries. We're getting better at what we're doing, or at least we're getting, we're getting, we're getting more consistent at what we're doing. Uh, I'd like to think we're getting better too, but like you know, when um, our, our the beans we get from Guatemala, we we on the bar we say Cajabon Guatemala. The beans are technically coming from a co-op named Adios Mac. It probably would have been better to say Adios Mac Guatemala, um, but a nobody knows what excuse me nobody knows what an Adios Mac Guatemala is. B um, uh, I think at the time we were trying to say. We, we were trying to have the names of the bars be the places the beans came from. And I think it was over time we realized like, so now what we try to do is we try to be as precise as possible as to where the beans come from. And as precise as possible is that in Cajabon, Guatemala, it's usually very quiet here. In Cajabon, Guatemala, there's a number of co-ops. So if you say Cajabon, it's not actually, it's, it's not precise enough. Whereas if you say adios mock, you know exactly where those beans came from. And so now what we're trying to do, and you'll see this trend in sort of the newer, newer bars that we have, we, we, we try to name it as precisely as possible so that uh, people know exactly where those beans came from. And if they wanted to buy those beans as a chocolate maker, they could. Instead of being like, well, I guess Dan Lang gets them from Cajabon. Like, we'll try to find someone in Cajabon. Uh, we also do a sourcing report for that reason. The main goal of our sourcing report is to help other makers understand how much we pay, you know, where we get the beans from, all these sort of things, but also to help cacao producers understand where we get our beans from, how much we pay, all these things. Because, like, if you're a cacao producer in Ecuador, it's very difficult to set your price because, A, there's a market, there's a world market price that is, I think for lack of a better term, entirely unfair. There's a reason um, they call it the floor price, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's supposed to be the floor price, but it's often used as a ceiling, right? It's supposed to be the floor, but most of the time, beans are bought 
at or around the world market price because people see that as like, well, if I buy it at that price, I'm paying a fair price because the market says this price is fair. Now, this doesn't happen in specialty cacao as much, but if you're talking about the like bulk market, that's kind of how, uh, often how it works. Uh, I don't know if you know Tony's Chocolate Only um, uh, is, a, is a brand out of the Netherlands. Um, they have an incredible transparency report that I really encourage you to read because they're very transparent about how pricing works at sort of large-scale cocoa in the Ivory Coast, which is where they get most of their cocoa from. Um, and so it's really interesting to read through that and see like how much they're paying for fair trade premiums versus how much they're paying for like fair trade certification, which, you know, spoiler alert, it's actually about the same amount of money. So the amount of money they're paying for the certification is almost the same amount of money that the producers are getting as, as that premium. Um, so in specialty, people are starting to move away from being tied to the market price and just saying, this is the price of our beans, who cares what's going on with the market? But when you do that, you need to figure out how to price your beans. And so part of the reason we do a transparent or a sourcing report is so that people at least know what we pay for our beans. And that, and you know, that way they can be like, well, if, you know, it seems like these guys, because we're buying like large enough, we're buying container-ish quantities. So it's like, okay, if Dan Line's buying at approximately that quantity, approximately that price, I have a sense of the, you know, the quality of my beans versus the quality of those beans or the flavor of mine versus the flavor of those. It, it helps people sort of figure out how much they might be able to charge for their beans. Um, or at least this is what we've been told. <laughs> so in terms of the, the subject of cacao brands, is there anything else that you feel like you haven't been able to share? Uh, right now, consumers see things one way, chocolate makers see things another, and cacao producers see, see things in a third way. And clearly, consumers aren't going to change. You can try to change consumer perception, but like that is a fool's errand. Um, I think consumers will think what they think. Uh, and so the question is, how much can you tweak consumer perception versus try to understand what consumers do and are looking for and try to, and try to sort of help build things that work, that are in line with that, but are also in line with your own like philosophy, et cetera. And so to that Nudge end... Them. Yeah, not them, right. Um, I mean, craft chocolate. Like, no one wanted to pay $10 for a chocolate bar 10 years ago, right? And so that's changed. Um, uh, and so it's not, that, it's not that behavior will never change. It's that I think you can't just assume you can whole-scale change consumer behavior. But, um, but so I think in terms of cacao brands, I do think it's really, like, I think you're doing a disservice to a cacao producer if you're a chocolate maker and you don't say where you get your beans from. Because I think... You, you would like your consumers, if they eat your chocolate and like it, you wouldn't be excited if they like brought it to a party and said, here's a great chocolate bar. I mean, I don't want to let you know where I got it from because you might buy all that chocolate out from under me. So I'm going to keep this chocolate a secret. Like, th that would be laughable. But like, that's kind of what chocolate makers do when they don't talk about where their beans come from. And again, this is, this is less and less prevalent. Like, the, the Beautiful metaphor, though. Yeah, right? I mean, like, well, and this, is, and this is the way we approach everything is like, hey, how would we feel if somebody did that to us? Like, how would we feel if our customers did that to us? We should be treating the people we're working with in the same way we want to be treated. I'm not saying that to be judgmental because I understand that the, the vast majority of the chocolate market for literally centuries has been no transparency. And so as, as chocolate makers you learn based on who's around and who's doing something. And like the examples that have been set for a very long time is very little transparency. And so 
part of what we need to do as the current generation of chocolate makers is set the tone and set the stage for future generations of chocolate makers to be like, well, I mean, now, now it's just now it's just people are making noise for the sake of making noise. It was a bread truck. We got distracted for a minute, but we got right back into it. You know, getting back to the sort of the word responsibility, I think it's partly our responsibility to set the appropriate tone. Because whatever we do is what the next chocolate maker two years from now is going to be like, oh, if, like, if, they, see, if they see brands of cocoa on all the bars that they're buying and they're eating and they're enjoying, when they make their own bar, they'll be like, well, of course I'm going to put the brand of cocoa on it. And if they don't, they won't. So that's why I feel like, you know, for this change, we all have to do it. Like, set a you know, standard, yeah. Yeah, we got to set a standard. Especially in such a young industry. Yeah. The, the other thing that I think has been really interesting about brands is um, everything I've heard from people who sort of have been doing studies on this is, is more and more consumers, at least in the U.S., are moving away from certifications as a way of establishing trust. The goal of a certification is to say, hey, I, we get it, we're, we're a big conglomerate, you're never going to trust us, but trust the certification and then you know we're not doing something inappropriate. More and more people don't trust the certifiers now, appropriately so, because I feel like they, uh, I think what they're starting to realize is certifiers aren't actually doing what they thought they were. Um, there was a study that FCA... The, they're not having the impact. They're not having the impact, and it's also um, Rainforest Alliance has a has a frog as its logo. Mm -hmm. And when FCIA, the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, did like a study and asked like what people what Rainforest Alliance did, they were like they save frogs, right? And and so like I think a lot of people just don't necessarily even understand what the certifiers do. None of our chocolate certified. It's not certified anything, uh, except delicious. <laughs> certified was delicious um, but what, what we do our approach is it is not the cacao producer's responsibility to prove to us that they're doing everything right it is our responsibility to go and understand if we want to work with them and so this is why I travel all the time I know everyone thinks it's because I love being on airplanes um, but like the reality is the reason I travel is because like it's our responsibility to go and vet the people we're working with just in the same way we want our customers to come and vet us. Like we want our customers to learn about who we are to, in order to buy our products and then decide if, if what we're doing is in line with what they want. It seems only fair. We should do the same thing. We don't pay our customers to fly out to San Francisco to visit our factory. Why would we expect the cocoa producers we work with to pay to fly us out? The reason I say that is because like with certifications, in order, if you're fair trade certified as the producer, you have to pay for the certifier to come out and do the certification. It's very expensive. Um, and so we're, what we feel like is our, the, the way we build a supply chain is we build relationships through the supply chain. That's, and that's my job. The job of a sourcer is not tasting beans. It's not traveling a lot. Uh, it's building relationships with people and understanding who you want to work with. Um, no, you also said sorcerer. So yeah, you, you yeah, like yeah. didn't even. And, yeah, no. In fairness, I, that I, was automatically. My official that. title is, in fact, sorcerer. Um, was it self-given? Yeah. It, well, it was suggested by somebody else, and I really liked it, and so I adopted it's it. It's a good title. Um, it was actually suggested by Maya, who used to work at Maya Mountain Cacao. Um, she used to work for Dan Line before she worked for Maya Mountain, 
and uh, at the time she suggested. Now where is she? Uh, she's in business school. She she went from Dandelion to My Mountain Cacao to Uncommon, and now she's in business school. But um, anyway, so uh, yeah, yeah, Sorceress is my official. Actually, my official official title is Vice President of Research and Development because That's it's not as fun. It's not as fun, and um, uh, but when you're signing like bank papers, like for an account, and you say Chocolate Sorcerer, they're like. Um, no, but what's your real title? It was like Chocolate Sorcerer. And they're like, that's not a title, sir. Again, I think as I love my job. I love sourcing cocoa. I love working with people all over the world. I think it's fascinating what people think a sorcerer does. Like every time you talk to people. Because I think they really think it's mostly about like, I, I don't... Looking at trees and like being like, that's a good tree. We well, like that tree. But, and, and like, I think if you're an American listening to this, it, the, the equivalent of what I do is if when you're like, oh, if you're going to the United States and I'd be like, I am, and I'm going straight to Idaho to visit farms, right? And so like when people are like, oh, you're going to, you know, Thailand, you're like, yeah, I'm going to Thailand. I'm going to farms in Thailand. I'm not going to, you know, I rarely spend any time in any of the cities of the places I go to. Like, I never get to see the touristy parts because, like, if I did that, I'd spend nothing but all day, every day. Like, even adding, like, one day to every trip I take this year would take months, right? You know, and so I, like, so you gotta, you gotta, you know, stay focused on the job. I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you a single tourist site in Tokyo except Tokyo Station, yeah, where there yeah. were a bunch of people taking pictures. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think that's that makes true. a tourist site. That's site. true. It's really um, pretty, though. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, um, the other thing is, what do you write when you put on impo- um, immigration papers? Chocolate maker. Oh. Um, and and the, the, I used to put chocolate sorcerer, but then like I, like people ask people way too many questions. Stopping you? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. There's definitely um, there's definitely uh, like. Did you say sorcerer? <laughs> I think it's the sorcerer part that confuses them. <laughs> I know. Because sometimes um, they don't speak English, and they have to Google it. Yeah, oh, like, yeah sorcerer. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a magician. That's I, weird. Yeah, yeah. Did you say you're a magician? You're a witch? Is that what you said? <laughs> that could be um, a translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I I, I say chocolate maker. Which is, I, I don't want to detract from the chocolate makers that we have. The, I don't make chocolate all the time. That's not your only job, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like, the only time I make chocolate is, like, I teach our internal classes where, like, all of our new employees go through, um, go through a long series of classes to learn about all things dandelion. And one of the classes is where they learn to make chocolate, and they learn to make a small batch of chocolate. And I teach that class. So that's, like, once a month I get to make small, a small batch of chocolate. That's pretty much most of the chocolate I make. That counts. Yeah, our our team of chocolate makers is way better making chocolate than I. <laughs> I, I mean, I would hope. If yeah, only exactly. Doing it once right? a month, yeah, yeah. But. It's like they've gotten really good at it. I used to make chocolate. Uh, now I source cocoa. But it, like, it was interesting that you said responsibility because that's how it really feels to me. It's like it. We're not about like buying the cheapest beans, the cheapest, best tasting beans. We this is really interesting. A lot of the old school chocolate makers, when you talk about quality. They get very uh, antsy when you try to associate price and quality, because in their minds, like no, 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 price and quality aren't associated. It's like price is whatever the market tells you the price is, and then if you get high quality beans, that's like you've done a great job, right? Because like in their minds, they're like no, 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 the the, the quality doesn't dictate price. They're they're like these two different dimensions, which is so fascinatingly different than the way a the rest of the world works and b how we see it. We're like, no, if someone makes a better product, like, you pay them more money. 
Is you, don't, you don't try and get the best deal. Never. Yeah. We, we, what we try to do is we try to get, we try to get the most fair deal. Exactly. We try to get something that we believe, we try to work together to come up with something that we feel like is sustainable for both of us. You know, um, we've never talked anybody down on price. Uh, if they, if they have a, if their price is too high and we don't think the beans are worth it, we don't buy them, you know? Um, and if we do think it's worth it, then like the price they're asking, like, you know, apparently it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. And which is, again, think about how it works when people come into Dandelion, they're like, it's a pretty good chocolate bar, but I mean, the going rate for chocolate bars is $2. I'll give you $3 for this bar. I know you want $10 for it, but I'm going to give you $3 for it. Like, if people don't do that to us, why is it appropriate for us to do it to cacao producers? Like, I think, like, if the whole world looked at things that way, of, like, how would you feel if you were treated that way, like, power balance would shift constantly because people would be like, oh, you mean when I'm in the position of power, I can't just arbitrarily use that power to get more? When you work in sourcing, power dynamics is, like, everything you see everywhere is about power dynamic. I, I don't know if you've read our book, but... Um, yeah, I have it at home. Uh, in it, we say... In it, like, one of the things I say is that, like, I basically, like, every time I go to a new place, I assume, like, every other white guy who's ever been there has... Excuse my up. language. Yeah, fucked it up, right? And it's true. There's so many places you go. When I... My very first trip to Venezuela, it's literally the only other white guy who'd been there was a missionary who brought religion... Like, it was this indigenous community. Brought religion and then created a schism in the village where half the village was like, well, now that we're religious, alcohol is bad. And the other half of the village was like, I like booze. I'm in a village in the middle of the rainforest, right? And, and, and literally, the, like, the, when I say schism, there's now two villages that were fighting with each other. One freaking white dude caused all this chaos, and that's what I mean is like that is what you have to assume all the time is like is like like you have a bunch Traveler's of Traveler's burden. Yeah, well and you, and it's like a bunch of white guys and like I, I know it it's not always it's not they're not always white and they're not always guys, but a lot of times they are, right? Um who have just like stumbled, said things. There was there is a country which I won't name, and a chocolate maker who went there who I won't name. Who the chocolate maker was like, these beans are great. You guys should be getting, you guys should be getting six, seven thousand a ton for these beans. This is a chocolate maker who buys like half a ton of beans a year. And so everybody in the country basically was like, oh, well, we're not going to sell our beans then until someone pays us a fair price. And so everybody was holding on to their beans because they said, no, no, he's going to come back and buy all of our beans for like seven thousand a ton. And the government was like, no, this is this is bad. You guys can't just not sell. Any, like, he's not coming back. And they're like, no, he's gonna come back. He said, it. and like, and like, he's not a bad person. He's a friend of mine. He said an off the cuff remark that he didn't realize the impact it was gonna have on everybody around him. And so it's like everywhere you go, you constantly have to be like, how can this go badly? And like, I've probably done it, and I'm just unaware of it too. You know. And so, like, it really is a responsibility, and you really have to take it super seriously. And, like, it's not travel, it's not adventure, it's work. You are taking the responsibility of not screwing up massive communities of people into your hands every time you go into communities that nobody else is going into.
A huge thank you to Greg for sitting down to chat with me after the craft chocolate market. And another huge thank you to you for listening. Tune in next week for another installment in the mini series. Until then. Mm-hmm.